science enthusiasts. I'm your host, Jason Zakowski. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, but you probably know our dog, Bunsen Burner. He is the Twitter science dog. This podcast takes what's best about dog Twitter, the curiosity and fun and wholesomeness found there, and swirls it into podcast form. Every week, we'll have some timely science news, fun articles about dog science or pet science, and an interview with an amazing science expert. This is The Science Podcast. Hey, how's everybody doing this week? Hopefully everybody's doing great out there. Our family's doing fine. I, uh, well, okay, so I'm not doing super great. I'm getting better, actually. I was taking Bunsen cross-country skiing. If you've you've been keeping up on Twitter, I twisted my leg and wrecked it a bit. So the amount of movement that I've had the last week has been really low. (laughs) It's been, I've been hobbling around and Bunsen has been missing, Bunsen has been missing his outdoor skis. Uh, Been able to take him snowshoeing the last couple days. It's getting better. Um, But it was a real rough go the first couple days there. For me personally, I've got a bunch of big presentations at a teacher's convention to do about science. And I'm actually presenting about the science podcast. So that's going to be really exciting to talk to teachers about the podcast. In this week's show, we're going to talk a little bit about CRISPR. There's some news about that. In dog science, we've got an adorable article that we're going to go through. And our guest is Dr. Samantha Wilson, an epigenetics researcher who also uses machine learning to help her understand the reams of data she gets in her research. Hey Bunsen, did you know that you can genetically edit lettuce genomes? Yeah, it's true. You can make it crisper. <laughs> okay, <laughs> on with the show. Because there's no time like science time. This week in science news, there's a really interesting story about immune cells that have been edited with the CRISPR system, the Cas9 protein, to fight cancer, and they seem to be safe and also long-lasting. It's a very small safety test of the cells in three cancer patients at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, three cancer patients is a very small sample size. It's exciting because the immune cells put into the people didn't have any adverse effects. All right, what what the heck is CRISPR anyway? So blah, 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 let's take it back a second. If you have heard of CRISPR and you're not real sure, like I was, I had no idea what CRISPR was, uh, you know, about a year ago and had to, I was watching videos about it and learning about it to help teach it in school. CRISPR is a technology. It's very simple compared to what was done in the past and it's used to edit genome. CRISPR is shorthand for CRISPR-Cas9. And CRISPR's a specialized stretch of DNA. Cas9 is just an enzyme that acts like uh, like box cutters and goes and then cuts out a strand of DNA. There's a special bacteria that has CRISPR in it to, as a defense mechanism against virus attacks. And, and like how, wh- wh- how did this protect the bacteria? Well, when the virus had injected its own DNA into the bacteria, the bacteria's Cas9 defense system saw the DNA or, you know, they had a way to check it. And it was like, whoa, you don't belong here, buddy. And used the box cutters or, and just like, whoop, and then sliced up the DNA of the, the invader, you know, rendering it useless. That's so cool. So that's what CRISPR is. It's making use of this bacteria's defense mechanism and the scissors, like the precision ability to cut out 
genes or sections of DNA, but also insert other genes in there in its place. And that's led to a whole bunch of like really exciting breakthroughs in gene editing or in the future, some really exciting gene editings to come. All right, back to this study. The three cases, the three people that had cancer, there was no other treatment for them. Sadly, their their cancer could not be controlled by any other therapy. Now, the, the gene-edited immune cells didn't cure the cancer, but the cells stayed in their body for a long period of time without any side effects. This was reported on February 6th in the Science Journal. This is a huge deal because... When you edit things, there's unintended consequences with it that are, you know all biologists and geneticists have to worry about. Like when we change a cell and we monkey with its DNA uh, using CRISPR, long term, what's going to happen? And this study seems to show that in humans, it didn't do any you know, it didn't do any damage. Not to say this study was without error. There were some errors made in editing. Uh, of these of the immune cells so it didn't go a hundred percent to plan so the immune cells they were editing were uh, t-cells and they were you know editing the t-cells to make them more efficient at finding and killing cancer cells when they looked at the cuts they made with CRISPR in the t-cells they had a 93% accuracy. Some of it was off target and some of that became like junk DNA that just didn't work the way they wanted to. Um, one of the concerns, right, is if that if you don't get a perfect edit in a T-cell that's in charge of keeping the body's immune systems running, you could have a mutated T-cell inside the human body and that itself duplicate itself and become a problem. So it's a quick little article and it's a quick little talk for us. CRISPR is really exciting. This is a human trial of a CRISPR-edited immune cell. Well, the editing process didn't go 100% and it didn't cure the people of cancer. It didn't cause any issues in the humans and the T-cells remained in the human body for nine months, almost a year. So baby steps. This could be in the future the main way we fight cancer. You get your own T-cells edited with CRISPR to supercharge them with, with super cancer-fighting powers and they are sent out in your body to hunt down and destroy the cancer more effectively. That's science news for this week. All right, it's time for dog science. And this week, we're going to talk about germs on people versus germs on dogs. Does anybody out there have a dog that gives you kisses? Bunsen is a huge kisser um, and he doesn't discriminate. It's really funny. Our golden retriever we had before Bunsen, her name was Callan and she never ever licked me, my face, like ever. If she did, it was like an accident. Um, but she would, she would definitely lick other people in the family, not me. Bunsen likes to lick everybody. He'll put his face up to your face. He likes to get, especially if you're lying on the couch and he wants cuddles, he'll come over with his giant head and like smash it into your chest or lay it on your chest or get his face right in your face. And then, and then if you look, if you look in his eyes, he loves to lock eyes with you. Then he'll go and then he'll lick you. It's like, it's coming. You know, we sh I should be prepared for the Bunsen lick, but I'm never prepared. Definitely in the news, there have been horror stories of people who have been licked by their dogs only to have great calamity occur because within their dog's lick, there was some kind of germ that led to sickness or amputations. The study we're going to look at was in the European Radiology Journal, and it took a look at the germs in the beards of men 
versus on the fur and the saliva of dogs. And the dogs ranged from schnauzers to shepherds, random hodgepodge of dogs. I don't know what, I don't, they did not put what the different kinds of men there were. Like, I don't know if they were all hipsters and they had hipster beards or if they were like ZZ Top, you know, uh, baby boomers with giant Santa Claus beards. The study's not super specific on the beards, just that there was beards involved on men. So the results were shocking. The researchers were looking for human pathogenic bacteria. So bacteria that makes us humans sick because they didn't really care if there were bacteria in the dog's mouth that made the dog sick because they were trying to show, you know, if a dog licked you, what is your what is your risk? And one of the things they were trying also to determine was if a dog used an MRI scanner, could a human use it right after? And, and would you be worried about being sick from the MRI scanner? And then they're like, well, okay, let's get some hairy dudes in there and check their bacteria too. And the humans were dirtier. Not only did these guys with beards have way more potentially harmful microbes, but they also left the MRI scanners way more contaminated than the dogs. One of the funny things they found was that there was an, like, there's MRI scanners that are just for dogs and there's MRI scanners that are just for humans. Because of the apparent idea that dogs are dirtier than humans, the MRI scanner for dogs was cleaned more regularly and when they checked it versus the human MRI scanner, the human MRI scanner was way dirtier. It had way more bacterial load. On to the question about uh, microbes on the skin and in the saliva. Again, the men had more microbes on their skin and their saliva than the dogs did. Seven of the men and four of the dogs tested positive for for pathogenic microbes. So microbes that could make you really sick. Um, In the human Staphylococcus aureus or staph infection, is the one that's in your mucus um, and lives on a lot of us. Uh, It could cause a lot of serious infections if it gets inside you though and, and you get a staph infection. So what are some conclusions from the study? Well, one, humans have more potentially infectious bacteria on us than dogs do and we humans will leave potentially infectious bacteria on surfaces more than dogs will. Also, the tagline of one of the re- one of the researchers said, uh, wh- where is it here? Okay. <laughs> um, the tagline isn't, reach for the electric razor now, Rasputin. Um, they're just like, everybody should be aware that beards have bacteria in them and more bacteria than your doggo's fur. So that's a fun little science story and a fun little science article about dogs and bacteria and how how if you've got some beard growth, you're probably more dirty than your dog. Make sure you wash that thing, guys. Get You know, when you're in the shower, just scrub that beard down. Um, yeah, because it's grosser than dogs. Go dogs. That's dog science for this week. Hey, everybody, before we get to the interview section... I thought I would just tell you how the podcast is made possible. It's made possible because of people like you. The Science Podcast will always be free to download. That was important to Chris and I when we started this, that it just be free for anybody who who would like to listen to it. If you love the content, we've set up a Patreon account so that you can support the show financially at any level that you'd like. 
and we've got four different tiers. The lowest tier is only five bucks a month. That's literally one trip to Timmy's, guys. You Canadians out there, you get your double-double, you get your, your donut. You might get one of those breakfast sandwiches. All right, that doesn't make any sense to the Americans. Anyways, for, for people from other countries, whatever, like wherever you get your coffee. And if you're UK people, that's your tea. If you want to support the podcast, we would love to have you. There are tons of fun swag that we send out for folks as part of our tiers. And you can find us at patreon.com backslash Bunsen Burner. Or, you know, there's going to be a link in the show notes. Thanks to those of you who support us. And for our future supporters, thank you so much. Back to the show. On the Science Podcast, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Samantha Wilson as our expert today. How are you doing, Dr. Wilson? Good. How are you? I'm so good. Uh, where are you Where are you calling in from today? I'm in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Oh, boy. We have another Canadian on the program. Or are you Canadian? Were you born in Canada? I was actually born in Australia. Oh, okay. Well, you're in Canada. Yeah, I've been here since I was eight months old, so I'm uh, I'm ninety percent Canadian at this point. There we go. You're you're mostly con- mostly Canadian with a little down under. Exactly. So one of the one of the really cool things about your job is it's all about uh, like basically you could distill it almost to like uh, the process of pregnancy, and that's not something we've had a guest on the podcast ever about. It's really exciting to to talk to somebody who has that expertise in the, the research and the, the science around that. Can you tell everybody kind of what your educational training is as a, a, a doctor? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a bit of a journey. After high school, I went to the University of Western Ontario, and I was fortunate enough to be able to study genetics right off the bat. And that was something I was very interested in and got interested in my junior and senior year of high school. Uh, After I went to Western, I then went to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC, and completed my PhD in medical genetics. And this is where most of my work focused on looking at molecular signatures in the placenta and seeing what these molecular signatures are and how they relate to different types of pregnancy complications. So I previously have looked at preeclampsia which is a maternal hypertensive disorder where the mom gets really high blood pressure and then all her other organs get involved in this disease. And it can be really life-threatening for both the mom and the baby. And that's that's super, that's super dangerous, isn't it? I've, I've heard that, that that can lead to like, it's, it's deadly. Yes. It's super dangerous and can be very deadly. It's actually the leading cause of uh, morbidity and mortality worldwide for pregnancy complications. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. And then another thing that often occurs with preeclampsia that can occur on its own is intrauterine growth restriction. So this is when the baby is just not growing to the extent that it should. And that can also be dangerous. So my PhD focused mainly on those two complications and looking for different types of genetic signatures in the placenta that could be associated with them. Uh, Currently, I'm now a postdoctoral fellow at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, and that's under the University Health Network in Toronto, uh, Canada. And for those of you that don't know, a postdoctoral fellow is someone who has completed their PhD and they're continuing training in science. And this is the stage that I like to refer to as being a teenage scientist, where we still need some guidance, but we just ask our advisors for money to do cool experiments. 
uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely been a journey, but it's a lot of fun. And now I'm moving my work from looking at molecular signatures in the placenta to trying to develop non-invasive tests to predict pregnancies that are at risk of not only preeclampsia and fetal growth restriction, but other types of preterm birth. Uh, so I'm, so yeah. That's your current, that's your current area right now that you're, you're researching. Yes. That's my current area. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. We might talk a little bit about that later. I don't want to spoil anything, but that's, yeah, that's yeah. very cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, you did some of your, uh, your schooling in Vancouver. Hey, I did. I loved it. Oh, uh, Vancouver and the Island. Oh, that's just like the, one of the most beautiful places on earth. I think I was hiking every weekend. I, yeah, <laughs> I missed the mountains. Oh man, did you did you get out to the island? Did you go to Tofino? Yes, I did, and I isn't and on my birthday, it was my twenty fifth birthday, and I re, it was a dream because for the first time in my life, I got to see wild orcas. Yeah, and it was it's like another it's like another. I tell it's just crazy. I could talk about uh, I could talk about the west, the very west coast of Canada for hours. It's just mm-hmm. gorgeous out there. Oh, it's beautiful. I miss it so much. <laughs> We're. Uh, I, I teach high school chemistry and I'm um, I'm the science coordinator for school and we're taking a group of kids to the Banfield Marine Biology Center oh, wow. in March. Oh. So we're heading out there with a crew to to go study marine biology on in the Banfield Center, which will be really fun. Yeah, they're going to have an amazing time. <laughs> Sorry to hog the conversation. I just uh, it just it brings back such fond memories. Uh, we, we live in Alberta. And and you're in Toronto right now, so we're yeah. both so landlocked, like it's days to get to an ocean. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, and it's in your Twitter bio, that uh, you you study epigenetics, and um, could you explain that to everybody, like what that means, like kind of like how Michael Scott from The Office is like, can you explain it to me, like I'm five? Yeah. So. Epigenetics is kind of it's a number of different modifications that can be made to DNA sequence. So our DNA sequence alphabet letters are A, G, C, and T. And these are written out for 3 billion base pairs, and that encodes who we are. But, you know, there has to be something that tells the cell that it's a liver cell or a brain cell or a heart cell. And so this depends on epigenetics. And these are modifications that are made to the DNA itself that doesn't change the sequence, but it can change if the gene is how the gene is expressed. So whether the gene is on or off or only on a little bit, and then they're also associated with what type of cell you're looking at. So the analogy that I like to use is that you can think of epigenetics as the context. So if we take the example of sheet music and different instruments playing a song, the DNA sequence would be the notes on the page and the epigenetic marks would be the other notations that really make up the music itself. So this would be like the tempo, the time signature, any noted sharps or flats. And then when you give the music to a certain type of music to a flute, we can think of the flutes as a cell type. You give another set of music to the clarinets, the trombones, the trumpets, and you can think all of those instruments of different cell types and when we come together, it makes up the whole song and, in, in our case, the whole human being. So epigenetics itself can be thought of as the context of a musical piece. What a great analogy. I love that. My uh, my son's in marching band, so it's uh, it hits home for me. <laughs> oh, good for 
band. I did band in high school. So oh, you I'm, did. So what's drum? Yeah. What's drumline in your analogy? Are they just rocking out to their own beat? Yeah, they're a whole different world. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah, so it's like the flair that the body puts on the DNA, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. Ah, very good. You yeah. do a ton of work with um, preterm births and and birth complications. That's another right. area you were just, we were just talking about preeclampsia. What can you share with us about that area? Like some things that if people were listening to this podcast that are expecting, what they should watch out for, and and maybe some of the interesting findings that you have found with preterm birth and birth complications. Right. So preterm birth and pregnancy is an area that I'm incredibly passionate about. So approximately 11% of births worldwide are actually delivered preterm. And we consider a delivery preterm if it's before 37 weeks. And for anyone who doesn't know, the normal gestation of a human pregnancy is about 40 weeks. And babies that are born preterm, particularly those born before 34 weeks, often need a lot of medical intervention in order to survive. And this is associated with long and short-term health outcomes, adverse health outcomes for these babies. And preeclampsia is actually associated with the mother developing heart disease in later life. So I think monitoring not only the pregnancy, but the mother in later life is incredibly important. So the two are related, uh, doctor? Um, like the, if, you, if a mom has preeclampsia, it pre- like it's increases her chance of heart disease or or yes it increases her risk so just because mm. you have preeclampsia does not mean that you're going to have heart disease in later life but there are some women and there seems to be a relationship between them and so a lot mm. of people are now doing work to try to understand what this relationship is i apologize for interrupting you that was just a really interesting thing you said yeah no worries it no i do think it's really interesting In terms of what to look out for in pregnancy, I think if you're uncertain about anything, uh, I would call your OBGYN. I'm hesitant to make any kind of clinical recommendations because I'm a PhD and not an MD. Right. So I just suggest that if anyone, you know, is having any kind of symptoms uh, to call your doctor and they will know best on how to provide treatment for your pregnancy. That's that's a that's a good point. Your area of expertise is is pretty specific. uh, And that's that's good that yeah, I like I like what you said that it reminds me of one of my one of my former students, he's just finishing up his uh, doctorate in um, the physics of sound. So yeah, so like, it's way beyond what I can I taught him chemistry, right? Not physics. So (laughs) the science teachers in high school really do make a difference. Like I remember every science teacher I've had, and how much they encouraged me to pursue science as a career because it wasn't something I was thinking about going into high school. So it's an important job. Oh, thank you. The The story I was going to say is uh, he's, uh, he's very concerned, uh, like if he's walking down the street and somebody's like, ah, we need a doctor. Somebody's hurt. And he's like, I'm a doctor. But <laughs> are you made of sound waves? Oh, no, I cannot help you. So... Yeah. <laughs> when, when about did you have an idea that you were going to go into science? I guess I could have asked that at this at the start, but it's it's just kind of a good uh, lead in from what you were just saying. Yeah, I it's hard to pinpoint it because going into science, I went to a school that was known for music, and a lot of people coming out of that school would go to music, go into music careers. Mm-hmm. So I just like, oh, I like music. That's what I'm going to do. I was never particularly encouraged to look at mathematics or science, but I, I was interested in it, but I, I didn't think I could do that. 
And it was my ninth grade science teacher who, you know, gave me my highest mark in science and had a discussion with me that I should think about this. And I was kind of taken aback at first. And then I started thinking, oh, I really do like this. And then a year or so later, genetics was put in front of me and I just became upset. Like it was, that was the path from there on out. Uh, I went to a particularly small high school. And so I just wrongly assumed that, you know, I'm interested in science, so I have to go to medical school. So I spent a lot of time in um, volunteering at the hospital and I would volunteer in the intensive care unit. And I started to realize that while I admire the people that do it, it's not really my interest. And providing that patient care is quite, uh, quite a lot of work. And so I started to think of other things I could do for that I was interested in, in science. And I found I was more interested in the mechanisms and the things underlying it. And I was the first person in my family to go to university. So I didn't know what a PhD was until I got to undergrad. And I was actually adamant that I was never going to do one. And (laughs) I just kept making decisions because I wanted to keep studying genetics. And then eventually I just was like, yeah, I'm going to do the PhD, I guess. And I it's been the best decision. I'm really glad I did. Oh, that's amazing. I normally teach grade 11s and 12s, but um, occasionally in 9 and 10, there is a little part in our Alberta curriculum about genetics. And I can mm-hmm. see the light go on in the kids' eyes when when I talk about genetics. And you do like a really simple Punnett square or something like that, right? And and they're, yeah. and, and I, can, I see those kids and I track them. And then in grade 12, they're like, they're usually our best bio students um, just because. I laugh. Because the Punnett square, I, I love genetics, and my best friend from kindergarten would always laugh because it was put in front of me, and for the life of me, I could not get it. I did not understand. She had to explain it to me, and so every time she tells someone that I'm a, I have a PhD in genetics, she likes to also tell them that she had to explain to me the Punnett square. <laughs> so she's flexing on you <laughs> whenever she can and good naturedly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Hey, one of the things we always ask our guests kind of in the middle of the interview is to share a story about their pet. It is the podcast after all. And and uh, I don't know about you, but when I talk about Bunsen, some people love hearing stories and other people's eyes just kind of glaze over. But I could talk about him every day of my life because we love him so much. Um, but the podcast is you have an, a captive audience. We want to know about your pet because... That's everything. That's something that everybody has in common that listens to the show. Can you share a story with us about a pet that you have? I think I know where, which pet you're going to talk about. Yeah. So I have a corgi. Uh, and uh, Her name, her full name is Rosalind Franklin. And she that. goes by Corgi. And so for those of you that don't know, Rosalind Franklin was a scientist that helped discover the structure of DNA. But unfortunately, she never got credit for her work. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Frankie is a year and a half old, and she's a particularly strange dog because she's scared of weird things. (laughs) I like I give her the little bits of my yogurt in the container, but if I put the container down, she's scared of the container. So she's interesting. And I got her because I love dogs and I wanted a dog, but I also want to take my dog hiking and camping because I do that often outside of work. Mm -hmm. And because she's a year and a half old, this past summer was the first summer that I could take her out. 
And for, for her first trip, I decided we're going to do a portage trip, which is canoeing. And I got her into the canoe and she actually did really well. She figured out she couldn't tip the, you know, she couldn't walk around a lot because she would tip the boat. And we're heading to our campsite and we come across these two loons on the lake, which was absolutely beautiful. And they were very active, more active than I've seen most loons. And they're calling out to each other and flapping their wings. And of course, at this point, Frankie decides that they're terrifying and just starts freaking out. (laughs) So I managed to calm her down and we keep going to our campsite and she does really well. And in the middle of the night, I have her sleeping in the tent with me. The loons started calling to one another and I have never seen her wake up so quick. And I still don't really understand how she managed to do this because my sleeping bag is a mummy bag that is fully covered. But she jumped up and managed to jump into my sleeping bag (laughs) and then come up. So our heads are just facing each other. So she spent the rest of the night sleeping on my neck. It would not out of my sleeping bag so it, it, i'm okay with that i like the cuddling yeah that is so cute yeah corgis are a little bit smaller than bernice mountain dog so i don't think bunsen can fit in anybody's yeah. sleeping bag he is a sleeping bag so <laughs> yeah yeah she's uh i grew up with uh, an australian cattle dog and i've always had big dogs around but in a city it's a little bit harder so mm. i kind of landed on her because she has a big dog personality in a little body so oh corgis are adorable they they are such good dogs they're just they're so yeah. sweet yeah she is uh the uh, a colleague of mine has a corgi as well um and her corgi's name is thor the Th- thorgi oh the my corgi. goodness yeah he's pretty cute he's he's big though he's a big corgi like not he, how, big is, how big is he big i'm not sure i have i'll have, I'll have to ask her how <laughs> much he weighs but he looks big he looks way bigger than the average corgi i think that's why they named him thor <laughs> that's adorable. So does does uh Frankie do well in the canoe? Like uh that took a little bit of like getting used to it and then was okay? Yeah, she likes to run around and she was trying to walk the rails of the canoe. Oh man. And the first day we had all our gear in it, so we didn't have like if we move it a lot, we're gonna tip the canoe. Exactly. Yeah. So we, I was kind of holding on to her and making sure she stayed put. And then the second day, she wasn't getting it. So I, you know, we had all our stuff out of the canoe. So I went out with my friend. I let her run the rails and I let her fall in. And she has since got the idea that that can't happen. So yeah. the utter panic when she met the lake was like, oh my God. The same thing <laughs> happened with Bunsen. I, I've taken him on the water a couple times. and uh, But he's so big, he takes up the spot of a person. Um, and then if he starts to move, <laughs> he could tip the whole thing. Um, and yeah. he does not like to swim. So I had to buy a, a life jacket for him. Cause I was worried about him. You know, mm-hmm. he, he hates swimming and he's heavy. Like when he gets wet, I would, I was just terrified that he might not make it. So he's even yeah. bigger when the, with this ridiculous dog, <laughs> this dog. <laughs> I, did, I did the same thing. She has a life jacket. Uh, she oh, I think it's really important, especially like, were you canoeing on a river? Uh, not for this trip. This oh, was actually okay. a lake. So it, it was pretty safe for her. And yeah. I was I did that as my first trip. Yeah, I, I went on a lake a couple times and then on a river. That's when I, I think you, no matter if your dog is an amazing swimmer, I think you need to put some kind of yeah. PFD on them because they could get swept away in the current. 
yeah, I think our next one will be a river. So yeah, absolutely. She has the life jacket. She has like a little light on her collar when we go camping as well. Oh, so, that's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a bear bell, but they're also very annoying to put on dogs because you just hear it constantly. Yeah. Well, let's get back to science. That's a that's an awesome story though. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> in your in your bio, you mentioned machine learning. Um like that's can you talk to us about what machine learning is and how that relates to your research? Absolutely. Thank so you. Uh, I like to say that I'm a geneticist by training and a computational biologist by peer pressure. Uh, <laughs> mostly because because our genetic data is so large. In order to handle that, I had to teach myself to code and deal with this large large amount of data. So when we're looking and trying to develop pr- the predictive models. What we're doing is essentially looking for patterns in this molecular signature that could be associated with whatever we're studying. So in my case, subtypes of preterm birth. But the data is so large that I can't just bring it up on my computer and be like, oh, look, there's a pattern. I have to really rely on and utilize the computer power. And this is where machine learning comes in. So machine learning is essentially developing different types of mathematical models. And there's many different types of models that you can use that will all be under the title machine learning. And we use these mathematical models to identify these patterns that are associated with subtypes of preterm birth, or if you're studying something else. And we identify, once we identify a model that we think is going to work by using some of our data, and we usually take our data and split it into two. And so we have a training data and a testing data. And we use models, we develop the models on what we call the training data. And then we test it out on the testing data. And once we find a model that works best, we test it or validate the model on a different set of samples. And this is what we call an independent cohort or a validation cohort. And if this model works well on the validation cohort that was never used in developing or designing the, the, the mathematical model to begin with, then we can say we, has, we have successfully developed a predictive model. Wow. Okay. Let's, let's break this down a bit. So yeah. f- first off, you, you had to teach yourself coding? Like I that- did, yeah. Okay, I've talked to some astrophysicists that had to do the exact same thing. Was that a steep learning curve for you? It was, yeah, it was an incredibly steep learning curve. And I was at first very intimidated about learning to code and I procrastinated a lot. (laughs) I would too. (laughs) I was, I didn't think I would be good at it. And eventually I had data and I had to learn how to code. So I just started doing courses online. And then there was a course offered through University of British Columbia that I took that was very helpful. And then it was a lot of just troubleshooting and reading papers for what worked for other people and just, you know, trying different things out. So now it's been quite a few years and I actually love it. It's a puzzle within a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it has been an interesting journey with that. And, but yeah, it's, it's a large, large, uh, learning. Curve. That's so interesting. The, the astrophysicist said the exact same thing that initially they were intimidated, did not want to have to do this. And then yes. once they figured it out, it's like a 
you know, part of their job. It's one of, it's an enjoyable thing. That's, that's so crazy that, that this is, you're now the fourth person that has said this. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, anyone who is remotely interested in uh, coding and just has that voice in the back of their head, like, oh, it's going to take too long. I'm not going to be good at it. Just jump in and do it. Because I think more often than not, you're going to find that you really enjoy it. And if you don't, then you tried something new and it's not for you and that's okay. Oh, good advice. Okay, so the second part that I'd, maybe you can help me unpack is to, you, when you code, you have to, your program, you have to train it on fake data to make sure it can do what it's supposed to do on, on real data. Did I get that right? Sometimes. So sometimes people will use fake data. Uh, what I do is I have, say right now I have 300 samples. I will take, say, 200 of those samples and use it to train the model. And then once I have a model that I'm like, yeah, this is definitely the model, then I'm going to use the 100 samples that were never used. Oh, okay. So you use real data and then you claw back some data. Yeah. Okay. I got so it. I withhold it and it's what I call, uh, or it's often referred to as the lockbox. And so the lockbox data should never interact with the developing and designing of the model mm-hmm. because in that sense there's kind of some bias that well of course your model is going to work well you designed it on this data so it's not a good measurement of how well the model will do on data that was not included in designing of the model so that's what we use the validation or lockbox data for is to say how well is this model going to do on any other data that you're going to bring in okay that got it that that's great thank you for explaining that that makes it's, it's all get it's all becoming more clear yeah. um that's really interesting also that you're you're talking about computers with your research because what i'm finding um because i'm not in research is that the the use of computer models is what is driving a lot of a lot of the science that we hear about in the news, everything like from climate science, astrophysics, population density, and, and your job with uh, pregnancy data, ep- epigenetics. Yes. Yeah, it's all it's all connected. That's very interesting. Yeah, and I think what's also really interesting is because we're all using big data and technology now is that it doesn't matter if you're a geneticist, an astrophysicist, a climate scientist, we can all come together and share a lot of our experiences and learn the computation from one another. Hmm. Uh, and I don't think people realize that, you know, I do talk to people who are physicists and I do talk to mathematicians and computer scientists and they're the collaboration between different fields of science is uh, integral to our success as a whole. That's very cool. I'm okay. So you maybe, maybe you can't answer this question, but uh, this one thing I've been noticing is that there seems to be more of a connection now with different scientists through social media, linking themselves through like technology like that. Do you find that versus like the older uh, people who have been in, in, in research that the younger generation is better at that or or maybe you just have to, like it's a, you just have to, to do what you need to do? I think we're more likely to use social media to engage the public, mm-hmm. but I have a number of scientists that I meet at conferences and collaborate with that are from all different generations. Okay. And they are all super into it. And I think that's what, for me, makes science Twitter fun is I can interact with all these people who I may or may not have met. And I've actually 
met some people on Twitter that have then come to work at my institute and now we're friends and, you know, people are coming into Toronto and they'll message me like, do you want to get coffee? And I, I think that kind of support and that kind of uh, just sense of community is what makes science Twitter great. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so glad you said that it, it's it's becoming intergenerational. Um, that's that's yes. great. I see that. I like. I'm I'm a step back from that because I'm not a, I'm not technically a scientist. <laughs> I've got a science degree and an education degree, um, but with Bunsen's account, I see that, and it's so uplifting to see all of these people on science Twitter just supporting each other, rah rah rahing each people's accomplishments and. When there's defeat, people feel down. There's people cheering them on to get through. I, I just love that. It's really uplifting. If anybody's listening to the podcast for the first time, you should really start following some scientists on Twitter, including Dr. Samantha Wilson. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, it, it is a great community. And I don't think when I first joined Twitter five years ago that I'd get so much out of it. And I really have. It's been a very supportive community and people pick you up when you're down and celebrate your successes uh, and you do the same for others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoy it. So if, if you're just starting out, if you're in high school or undergrad, if you're at all interested in any kind of area of science, I highly encourage you to go on Twitter and try to find some. And I'm sure they will all interact with you gladly. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are all very approachable. I love that. Hey, one of the things we one of the things we always ask our guests near the end of the interview is for a super fact. The super fact is something that you know that when you tell people it kind of like blows their mind. Do you have a super fact you could share with us? I do, and I was thinking about this a little bit this week and I've decided since it is the podcast, I uh I'm going to share a dog and genetics super fact. Ooh, oh boy, please tell. So uh, if when we look at dogs, so I'm going to use corgis as an example. So corgi in and of itself is a dwarf dog. And if you translate corgi in Welsh, it actually translates to dwarf dog. And it's because they have really short legs. And this short stature is actually due to a mutation in the fibroblast growth factor gene that influences how their bones grow. And that's why corgis have short legs. Okay, so it's a mutation. Yeah. Obviously, somewhere along the line, that mutation was selected by humans to continue in the line of corgis. Yeah, so corgis are actually herding dogs. And I believe that they were selected for short legs so that they don't get kicked in the head by the cattle and sheep when they're trying to herd them. But I'm not. I need to look that up. <laughs> Is have have you seen Frankie try to hurt anything? Uh, yes. Oh, really? Yeah. He prefers when everyone's in the same room. Oh. I have trained the nipping of the feet, but my cattle dog growing up, his name was Milo, and he would nip my sister and my heels and get us close together, and would physically hurt us in the backyard. Yeah, those cattle dogs are something else, hey. They're, they're, yeah, they were bred to tell those cows what to do. I I read they have like a thicker skull to protect themselves from getting booted in the head. Yes, they definitely do. (laughs) That's crazy. I love that. There, there are other dwarf dogs like corgis. Corgis aren't the only one I think I read too as well. Yeah. Dash hounds also have the same gene mutation as well. And that's what makes them short as well. Yeah. Well, that's a cool super fact. It's a super fact about genetics and dogs. How? What better can you get for a super fact? I thought it was very fitting. 
Oh, well, you know what? We're we're at the end of the interview. This has been a really fun uh, chat with, with you, doctor. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, so I primarily use Twitter for science and my handle is at Samantha L. Wilson. Uh, and you can find me there. And I hope some of you do. Is, is there any other causes or uh, other accounts you'd like people to know about before we close? Uh, really want to see an obsessive amount of corgi pictures uh frankie does have instagram and her handle is a corgi named frankie uh no e on the frankie uh and that is just purely photos of frankie i'll have to get bunsen's account on instagram to follow uh follow frankie yeah (laughs) well thank you so much for uh being a guest on the podcast and talking to us about genetics and talking to us about uh, pre-birth complications and and machine learning. It's been really interesting. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Okay. Well, you take care and we'll see you on Science Twitter. All right. See you. Hey, everybody. I just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Genius Lab Gear. Genius Lab Gear is giving everybody 10% off everything at their store if you use the code Bunsen10. That's B-U-N-S-E-N 10. Genius Lab Gear has a ton of cool stuff. We love that they sent Bunsen a bandana that says PhD Emotional Support Dog. It's so cute. Also, they have these little wallet-sized stencils for doing organic molecules. And if you're not a scientist or a science teacher, there's gear at the site that you would like as well, including Sciences for Everyone stickers and a whole bunch of other stuff. Check them out. That's at GeniusLabGear.com. It's time for Woo or Wow. In Woo or Wow, I read three statements. Two of them are fake. They're woo. And one of them is true. It's a wow. And my my co-host, my guest is Adam. How's it going, Adam? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Good. So today's Woo or Wow category is something that you might do really good at. We'll see. And a bunch of... Bunsen once pet. Uh, pet him. It's about music. Music. Yeah. yeah. So do you know how Woo or Wow works? I do know how Woo or Wow works. So I'm going to read the three statements and you have to tell me which one you think is the fake statements. There's yep. two and there's only one true statement. All right. All right. Here's, here's the first statement. Music can significantly distract the average person from driving. What do you think? Hmm. I'd like to hear the other ones. (laughs) Okay, okay. Here's the second statement. Moderate music has no impact on creativity. Hmm. I'd like to hear the last one. Okay, and the last statement is a teenager's music choices cannot predict their personality. Well, I would like to say that I do not... Do you want me to recap them or do you think you're good? Maybe recap them, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the first statement was music causes distracted driving to the average person. The second statement is moderate noise or moderate music has no impact on creativity. And the third statement is music choices among teenagers cannot predict their personality. Okay, well, I'd like to start with the first one that like music can distract you because it definitely can. Okay. It def- and I feel like it definitely can distract you from driving because, you know, you're paying attention to the music. You're yep. not paying attention to driving. Okay. So remember, there's only one true statement. Yeah. So I'm going to th- I'm gonna think that one's false. Oh. Now, the second one... You're mo- going to think music can distract you is false? Yes. 
Okay. Music can dis- wait no. Music can distract you from driving is true. Okay, so yeah. the first statement then you're leaning towards it being true. Yeah, the second sh- statement, uh, moderate music. Um, like explain moderate, like like not crazy loud, not super low. Oh, okay. Then I would say yeah, maybe if it's crazy loud, I feel like yeah, you would definitely not be able to be extra creative because you're paying attention to you know the beat and everything okay and i feel like the last one is most likely false just because teenagers are teenagers like they can be anything you can listen to rock and roll and you can be like a super nice person but like i don't know you're a teenager your tastes are weird so it sounds like you're all over the place so remember there's two fake statements and only one true statement yeah Okay, so the first statement again is music can significantly distract you, the average person from driving. Mm-hmm. The second statement is moderate music has no impact on creativity. And the third, third statement is music choices for teenagers cannot predict their personality. All right, yeah. I'm going to go with the first one being true and then the other two being false. Okay, so let's start with the third statement. The third statement is music choices among teenagers cannot predict their personality. That one is woo. It's actually true. They've they've done some studies and it only seems to be true with teenagers that there is more of a personality kind of matching with their music genre. What music genre do you like best, Adam? I don't know. I, I, it doesn't really matter to me just unless it's country. Country is kind of not my favorite. Teenagers who love country and Western are more likely to self-identify as being hardworking and outgoing. You, I don't know. There's nothing here for band. There's classical and jazz. Classical and jazz means you're creative, outgoing, and uh, have high self-esteem. I know that kind of that's kind of you. Yeah. So you got that one right. That one's not true. So that leaves two statements left. The second statement is moderate ambient noise has no impact on creativity. You said that one's false, and it is false. You got that one right. Yeah. That means ah, Adam won more. Wow. Let's go. <laughs> Good job. So it does. There is a lot of studies that show that that uh, for the average person, moderate ambient noise, be it music or just like general sounds can help with creativity. It allows your brain to wander a bit without wandering too much and then snap back into focus. And you're absolutely right. The average person gets crazy distracted if they're listening to music. Yeah. Um, I know I've been driving before and I've been lost and I was like, I got to turn down the radio. I can't see. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why can I not see when I'm listening to music? But I'm sure we've been driving and I've like shut off the music and I'm like, wait, I got to concentrate. Yeah, I know, Bunsen. So good job, Adam. You got him right. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> okay, that was Wow for this week. And it's story time with me, Adam. Hey, Dad, was there anything interesting that happened last week? You might have saw it on Twitter. Um, I posted a video about Bunsen being in a storm. There was this crazy storm that just came through, like a freak blizzard with snow that was blowing sideways. I don't even think you saw it, Adam. I think you were down in your room. Oh yeah, I was playing video games. Oh, it was insane. I I was sitting, I was actually working on the podcast, and I looked outside, and I couldn't see outside. I was like, what? Uh, am I having a stroke? Like, what's happening here? And then it was because the wind was blowing all of the snow everywhere. And then Bunsen was like looking outside. He's like, what's that? It's snow going sideways. 
Um, and then he had wanted to go outside. So we went outside and I got some crazy amazing footage of just him majestically standing in the blizzard. Um, if you've never been in a whiteout blizzard before, you can't see anything. Um, I couldn't even barely open my eyes because the snow was blowing right into my eyeballs. And Bunsen was like having tons of fun because he's invincible to the blowing snow. So it was ice shards blowing into your eyes. Is that what I'm hearing you say about winter? No, it was just like blowing snow. I couldn't see the highway. I couldn't even see the road. It was crazy. This is why I quit the winter. <laughs> All right, Mom. Was there anything that uh, was pretty interesting over the past week that you want to talk about? Yeah, so this has never happened before. We have our Patreon account, um, and we have patrons. So if you're interested in that, you can go check that out. However, um, we have it set up that patrons can access something called the Furbo at our house, which is... Um, Basically, it's a nanny cam for dogs. <laughs> and but what does it do that's cool? Well, you can throw treats and you can talk to Bunsen and he really likes it. He loves it. He loves it. Anyway, so we allow our patrons to access it. Anyway, I was talking to Jason and I said, okay, what time is the patron starting? And he didn't know. And I was just finishing up getting ready for school and I was at the computer checking something and then all of a sudden I heard it. It goes, makes this crazy sound and you know the treat's coming and Bunsen knows because he knows um, when the treats are going to come. And then somebody just started talking out of the furbo and Bunsen had come around the corner and he was at the furbo and then he looked at me and he looked at the furbo and he was just thinking I don't know I just from looking at him I was thinking he was thinking that what is going on here anyway regardless I have never been so grateful for the fact of how we built our house and we have a pantry that comes in from the garage right into the kitchen um, so I was able to bypass any video footage of myself and the furbo <laughs> although I was ready to go to work I was almost ready but um, that's what happened and I just thought it was really interesting you got to be careful with that furbo. Hey, Adam? Oh, yeah. Because sometimes, like, Adam and I will be, like, ready for bed, and I know I might just be wearing my boxer shorts, and Adam might just be wearing her boxer shorts, and it's got a motion camera on it, so if I forget to, like, turn it to the side, it'll, like, pick up, like, person alert, and then it'll videotape, <laughs> and I've, I've, like, watched the the recap of the video. And the, it, the doggy diary. The doggy diary, and it's like pitch black me boxer man, like just running by it because I realize it's videoing me. <laughs> and then I've caught Adam like sleepily, like trying to get mini wheats like super late at night. So, you, so we got to be more careful about that furbo, I think. All right, so what happened recently is that after my marching camp, I had a friend over and we hung out for like, I don't know, like th three hours maybe. So we came upstairs and Bunsen was running around. We had some fun with Bunsen. And then mom decides to go on the Furbo and then give Bunsen a treat. And I'm like, who's on the Furbo? Because I thought there was going to be a patron on there or something. And then mom was like, oh, no, it's just me. It's just mom. And yeah. Mom alert, mom alert, alert, alert. So I was quite shocked because I didn't know that there was going to be someone on the Furbo. <laughs> Why was mom on the furbo? What? I don't know. I think I think maybe she was FaceTiming me or something because I'm not on my phone 24-7. I sometimes have it like 
in my room while I'm like playing on the Wii or something like that, you know? And that's probably what we were doing. We were probably playing on the Wii. Oh, is that why you needed to go on the Furbo to talk to Adam? That's funny. Uh, well, it was just opportunity knocked because the Furbo went on my watch because it's connected to my watch. And then it said person alert. And I thought, perfect. Adam must be the person upstairs. Does Santi like Bunsen? Santi definitely does like Bunsen. Oh, he got to meet somebody famous. And Bunsen does like Santi. Well, that's good. Yeah. Anyway, that's been the story time with me, Adam. See you next time on the podcast when we do the mailbag. And that's the end of another great podcast episode. Thanks so much for listening. Also, thanks so much to our expert guest, Dr. Samantha Wilson, with her stories about her adorable Corgi Frankie and a really interesting chat about pregnancy, pregnancy complications, and her work with epigenetics and machine learning. I'd also like to give a quick shout out to our top tier patrons on Patreon. Without them, the podcast wouldn't be where it is today. They are Ben Rathert, Liz Button, Rebecca Rutherford, Andrea Persons, Bianca Hyde, Brooke Lavallo, Carmen Preciado, Chris Hemhold, Daniel Fry, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Judith Morton, Karen Beth St. George, Catherine Lynch, Kathleen Zerker, Mary Coos, and Marianne McNally. Thanks, guys. Boy, that list is getting so long. That's so exciting. Next week's podcast has a scientist from NASA on it as our expert guest. Make sure you tune in. Let's end with Bunsen's motto for science, empathy, and cuteness.